when I first moved off to college, I lived with a bunch of guys in, in one apartment and they were they really were some great guys and we had a, a whole lot of fun together. But one of the things that uh, we had to do that we just kind of naturally did was we created an environment in our apartment together of you know bringing together you know different people different personalities and I'll never forget uh, the, the first time we ran out of bread and I just remember sitting on the couch and I was watching TV and uh, one of my roommates said hey we're out of bread and th it was like a bomb went off everybody sticks their head out like we're out of bread and everybody runs to, to the rooms and and they're changing clothes and taking showers and you now you know one of my roommates you know hit me on the shoulder like dude come on get ready and I said what are, what are we doing they said we've got to go to the grocery store we've got to get more bread and come to find out you know that that um the grocery stores in, in Tallahassee where we live were a lot better than the uh, grocery store that we had when the, my small town growing up and what basically every time we went and got groceries it was an event it was an affair that that was a big to do and we would you know go and take showers and put on nice clothes and you know brush hair and all that kind of stuff to look nice because you could bump into all kinds of people you know at the grocery store and it was always such a, a, a funny thing that even when I didn't have any groceries I needed right because you know you're living in an apartment together with a bunch of different guys and you've got a mixture of what's some of its our groceries together some of its our individual stuff but we created this culture to where anytime somebody needed to go to the grocery store man we went as a group we made it a thing. You got dressed up. You get. You got a. You know, a smoothie in the store. You got a sandwich from the deli. You. Oh, you. You bumped into people. You said, "Hey, you met people." Why? Because this was just part of our culture. And it was funny to think about now because life's a lot different now going to the grocery store as a as a dad with kids and all that kind of stuff. But I remember just those years that we lived together. It was always such a big deal to go to the grocery store. That was part of our culture. And most of the time, like I said, I just went along with it. But sometimes we have a culture that we live in that um, has things that we don't want to go along with. Something not as simple as going to the grocery store and making a big to-do and getting dressed up to go meet and bump into people at the grocery store. We live in a culture and a society today, and we've talked about this before, that really is not following after kingdom culture, the kingdom of God. We're not living in a Christian um, mentality like so many years. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the United States of America was ever a 100% Christian nation. But I will say that our nation was founded on Christian principles and for the vast majority of our nation's time together, people have treated each other under the Christian ethic. And so as we have had the death of God movement and existentialism take hold in the, the late 1800s and early 1900s, we had the, you know, we took God out of our schools in the 1920s. We took God out of our government in the 40s and 50s. We took God out of our homes in the 60s and 70s. And as a result, the culture in our nation has dramatically changed really in the last century. 
Now, culture is always a, a moving target. Totally get that. But I'm talking about the overarching themes and beliefs of our culture have dramatically changed, especially in the last few decades. Because the last few generations, specifically the last two generations, have had a very dynamic change. According to the Barna Research Group, the two most recent generations, that over 70% of them do not believe in absolute truth. And I love it when that comes up, when people tell me that, because I love to ask them if they believe that absolutely. If they tell me, oh, there's no such thing as absolute truth, I said, do you believe that absolutely? Because that statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth, is an absolute truth statement. And so it's self-defeating. Kind of like saying, I always lie. But our culture is running as far away from God as it possibly can. And for a lot of different reasons that we've already talked about. But the question you and I have to ask is, how do we live as followers of Jesus in a nation and largely in a world that is turning its back more and more every day on the Christian worldview? How do we live our kingdom culture in the middle of a culture that has a dynamically different one? And the good news is when we talk about this and how do we confront culture, the good news is we are not the first people to have to deal with this. That throughout history, God's people have had to confront the culture they lived in in such a way to make a stand for the things of God in a culture that is so far and so distant and so turned away from the one true God. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. And as you turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, I want to set the stage for you. We always read the Bible in context. And so in this part, 1 Kings is part of the history literature of the Old Testament. And as we move out of the time of the wandering through the desert, where Moses goes through the Exodus and leads the people out of Egypt, the people are unfaithful, and so they that generation does not go and see the promised land. Moses and Aaron die in the wilderness. Joshua leads the people as they enter the promised land. And then while they're in the promised land and they they have all these military conquests, we go through the period known as the Judges, where judges rise up and either lead the people either out of disaster or away from their enemies that are trying to, to capture them. And they have all of these judges, right? Like Gideon and Samson. And Samuel is the last judge. And after Samuel, we see that that Israel cries out for a king. And Samuel is so brokenhearted over this because God wants to be Israel's king. And for a long time, they lived that way under a theocracy. But they wanted to move away from God being their king. And Israel wanted to be like all of the other nations around them. And so they asked for a king. And God gave them a series of kings even as Israel broke into two pieces of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, that the vast majority of the kings in Israel as a whole and Israel when it was a divided kingdom were not dedicated to follow after God. They were distracted by the nations around them and they absorbed that culture. 
And we've spoken about this before when we talked about the Baals, okay? Baal was both the name of a single god and also an overarching term for many different regional gods because the word Baal just means God. And so the people of Israel were constantly torn between following after Baal and following Yahweh, the one true God. And we talked about this before briefly or or in more in depth, so briefly just to remind you that during this time period to worship Yahweh, the one true God, was complicated. It was expensive. It took a lot of work. There were 613 rules or laws in the law of Moses. And to be obedient to the law of Moses meant following all of these laws, but also all of these complicated uh, festivals and sacrificial processes and having to leave your home and close up your business and spend money and, and effort and resources to travel to the temple to offer your sacrifices to God. And during this part of 1 Kings 18, we see that the people have been fallen into the temptation to turn away from worshiping Yahweh because of how expensive and complicated it was to the worship of the Baals. Now, like we said, Baal could refer to one of many gods that were different regional gods, right? The Philistines and the Canaanites and all of these surrounding nations each had their own, the Assyrians, they all had their own god that they followed and worshiped. But Baal also was a specific god. And so we see in 1 Kings 18 that Israel had turned away from worshiping Yahweh and most, by and large, most of Israel was worshiping Baal. Because worshiping Baal was pleasurable. It was easy. You could worship the the Baals or any of these other gods on any high place on top of a mountain or top of a, a, a high hill. And if you travel through the Middle East, there are tons of these, okay? There are some areas in the desert that are open and flat, but in the, the mainland area where most people live in, in uh, Jordan and Israel, what was the nation of Israel at the time, that's now parts of it are in Iraq, parts of it are in Syria, parts of it you know, are spread into other nations. But they had these hills and you could worship Yahweh, or excuse me, you could worship, instead of Yahweh, they would worship Baal. And what would happen is it was easy. It was You didn't have to travel. It didn't require uh, a, a lot of expense. And it was also very pleasurable. There were a lot of uh, sexual activities and physical parties and things like that that were going on in the worship of Baal. And so during this time, it gets even worse because when 1 Kings 18 takes place, and I know we're taking a long time, but I want to set the context. King Ahab and King Jezebel are the ones that are ruling Israel. Ahab was a wicked, evil man, and he was made even more wicked, spurred on to even more evil deeds by his wife Jezebel. She was so evil that that's why we don't name people Jezebel. I've never met in my entire life a woman named Jezebel, that that was her God-given name by her parents, right? That, that you just don't, it's just like you don't name people, you know, in America, you don't name people Adolf. Why? Because it's usually associated with Hitler, right? I'm, you know, maybe there are other places. I've never met an Adolf in my lifetime because of the association to Hitler. The same thing's true with Jezebel. And so during this time, and like we talked about this before, Elijah, the prophet, the man of God, has been in hiding. You know, he, he's been, you know, living away from the kingdom 
because he is being faithful to God and he has this rivalry with King Ahab. And this is where it really comes to a climax where God finally tells Elijah to go and confront Ahab. So that's where we are in 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 17. Elijah comes in to visit King Ahab. And in verse 17, it says, When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So, is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. So what we see here is that Elijah is being called on by God to confront this culture that God's people have been turned away by the alluring worship practices of the priests of Baal. Even the king and queen are encouraging the people to do this. And now Elijah's going to show them, God's going to use Elijah in a miraculous and mighty way to show the people who really is God. In verse 19, Elijah goes on and he says, Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. So here we begin to see in this model that Elijah portrays for us, because we need to be reminded there are two types of passages in the Bible. There are descriptive passages and there are prescriptive passages. Prescriptive passages give us a specific thing to do, like in the Law of Moses, where it gives us the Ten Commandments, right? Love God, right? No other gods. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Those are prescriptive. When Jesus said things like, love God with all you've got, love your neighbor like you love yourself, right? Those are prescriptions. They tell you what to do. But the rest of the Bible is filled with descriptions of events that happen. And when we read these, when we have to ask ourselves, okay, how do we apply this principle to our life? This is a descriptive passage. We don't live thousands of years ago in Israel worshiping Baal. If you ask most people in America, they probably have no clue who Baal is or how to worship this false god, right? But to the Israelites of the time, this was a big deal. This was part of their everyday life. And so while this is a descriptive passage, we can still apply the principles that we see Elijah go through. And here's the first thing. When God leads Elijah to confront the culture of his day, the first thing we see is that to confront culture, we have to stand up for what God says is right. We have to stand up for what God says is right, even if the culture does not say that. So for example, one of the common practices in our culture today is we live in a throwaway culture where if a relationship doesn't work out, you just throw it away. Just like that relationship is a car that's broken or a television that no longer works or a cell phone that's out of date. We just throw it away and get a new one. And we do the same thing with relationships. When friendships or romantic relationships or marriages don't work out, rather than fighting to fix it, we, we throw it away. We get divorced and we just move on. But God doesn't want us to do that. That as long as there's nothing abusive and dangerous in the relationship, we want to seek reconciliation. If people have a repentant heart and say, hey, how do we fix our relationship, right? That's a way we confront culture. We stand up for what God says is right. 
Another area of our culture that we don't talk about a lot is the entertainment industry. Man, when you, it, it, when you turn on television today, even public television, there's profanity and sexual content that never would have happened when I was a child growing up. So what do we do? We have to stand up for what God says is right, and we have to say, we're not going to participate in this. Or if this is happening around us, we're going to say, hey, we're not going to agree with this and go along with this in our homes and in our families and our relationships. To stand up, to confront culture, means we have to stand up for what God says is right. And so when we see this with Elijah, Elijah is willing to say, hey, we're not going to let you continue to worship Baal without seeing who the real God is. So now all of these people, all of Israel has come to Mount Carmel and they have brought all of the priests of Baal and the priests of Asherah. Or Asherah is another pagan god, okay? And they brought them together. And look at what Elijah does in verse 21. It says, Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer would you waver hobbling between two opinions if the lord is god if yahweh is god follow him but if baal is god then follow him but the people were completely silent you see elijah confronted the culture by standing up for god and the people now recognize there's a difference and then it goes on to say then elijah said to them i am the only prophet of the Lord of Yahweh who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. And here we see another principle that's very hard to do, that not only when we confront culture do we have to stand up for what God says is right, the second thing we realize when we go to confront culture is that we have to be willing to stand alone. Elijah was willing to confront over 850 priests of these pagan gods in front of all of Israel as one person standing by themselves against the culture of an entire nation. If you and I want to confront the culture of our world and bring kingdom culture, we have to be willing to do it even if no one else is. Because here is one of the sad realities of our current culture, is that even in the church, we are being invaded and pervaded by American culture. That the culture of our nation is getting so normalized that we are becoming desensitized to the ungodly things and the ungodly ways of thinking and the ungodly actions of our nation. That we stand by and we do nothing. At worst, we let it happen and even celebrate it. And like Elijah, you and I, if we want to confront our culture in such a way that's going to show them who the one true God really is, we have to be willing to even stand by ourselves, to stand alone. And look at what happens next in verse 23. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call the name of your God, and I will call the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. 
and all the people agreed. So notice this isn't just between Elijah and the priests of Baal and Asherah. This is all the people. Everyone in Israel had shown up and they're looking at the spectator on this situation. And they're saying, okay, we agree that this challenge is fair. Both altars are made, both animals are cut up and put on pieces, and the God who sends fire down from heaven is the one true God. Now, this is where we struggle when we come to confronting culture, because not only do we have to stand up for what is right and be willing to stand alone, but number three, we have to let God do his work. You see, we are God's ambassadors, but at a certain point, we have to step back and let God be the one who does the work. You see, I can teach apologetics all the time. I can teach the truths of the Bible. I can build relationships with people. But if God does not draw their hearts, then it's just a bunch of talking. The scriptures say that no one can come to God unless God draws them. And this is what we see here, that, that Elijah can't call down fire from heaven. God's the one that has to do that. Elijah can ask for God to send the fire down, right? But he's not the one doing the work. God is. And Elijah now, after being the one who stands up for God, in the midst of all of these cultural problems and differences around him, and not only is he willing to stand alone against everyone else, then he sits back and says, okay, God, you're going to have to be the one to do it now. And look at what he cries. Down a few verses later, we see the prayer of Elijah. Because here's what's happened. I'm skipping down to verse 37. But during all of these verses, just to summarize, the priests of Baal cry out to Baal. And they, you know, they, they make all these prayers. And they even, because Baal's not answering, they even start to cut themselves in ritual ceremonies to get Baal's attention. And Elijah taunts them the whole time. He even says, you know, maybe he's using the bathroom. <laughs> uh, in, in the actual Hebrew, this actually means that he's, he's on the toilet doing a number two, right? That, that maybe Baal just can't come to the phone right now kind of thing. He's busy. And finally, after they try and try, and they're even cutting themselves to get Baal's attention, and no fire comes from heaven, Look at what happens in verse 37. Elijah cries out, says, O Lord, O Yahweh, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, Yahweh, you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. Now, one of the parts that I forgot to mention was that Elijah even called for jugs after jug after jug of water to be poured over the altar so that a normal fire wouldn't catch. Now this would have been incredibly um, incredibly impressive to the people because not only is this completely drenched in water, he even digs a moat around it so the water will collect there. This is in the middle of a drought. So these people are taking their precious water that God has been God has been um, you know, holding back the rain. And so there's no water in the land from natural rain. And in the middle of this drought, they use this precious water to cover up all of the altar, the sacrificial animal, and it even makes a moat. And look at what it says in verse 38. The fire, it even licked up all the water in the trench. So Elijah does these three things. He stands up to the culture. He's willing to stand by himself. 
and then he lets God do the work. And in the end, a miracle happened. Now, this is something that we, we're, I'm gonna teach on miracles pretty soon here, but here's what you need to understand about miracles. Miracles only happen when God will receive the glory. Miracles are always done to show that God has power over the supernatural. When Jesus was on the earth, every person didn't receive a healing. People still died. People still got sick. Not everybody was raised from the dead, right? Only a few. Not everybody received a healing from their sicknesses and affliction. On the grand scheme of things, only a few. There were tons of people in Israel and the Roman Empire and all over the world that did not receive a miracle when Jesus was on it, doing his earthly ministry on the earth. Every miracle of God has always been done to show that God has power over the supernatural, that he really exists, and to give him the glory. And this is why this miracle happens. Not to give Elijah the glory, but to give God the glory and to show the people of Israel who the one true God is. But Elijah had to be willing to confront the culture to stand against it. He had to be willing to stand on his own. And then he had to step back and let God do the work. And this is our big truth for this week, is that confronting culture requires godly courage. Confronting culture requires godly courage. You see, it's easy to sit back and go with the flow. It's easy to sit back and just say, hey, this is just the world we live in. What change can I do? I can't, I can't change how the world works. This is an entire nation. I can't change our culture. You're right, you can't, and I can't. But God can. And God changes culture through people. Think back to the first century church living in the Roman Empire. The Roman culture was dramatically different from kingdom culture. Once again, covered in the worship of pagan gods to the point where the, the emperor would become worshipped while he was alive. And starting under emperors like Nero and Domitian and many others, they would declare that if a person did not worship the statue or the image of the emperor, then this person would be put to death. But all they would have to do is sprinkle incense in front of the image of the emperor and salute that statue and say, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians refused to do that. Instead, we know the famous passage by the Apostle Paul that said that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. And this would lead to their deaths. But over time, because people of Jesus, the people of the church, the Christians, were willing to stand up against the culture, even if that meant standing alone, and they let God do the work. Within 30 years, the message of the gospel spread through the entire kingdom of Rome, empire of Rome. And within less than three centuries, the entire Roman empire, the entire known world, become Christian under Constantine. How did that culture change so dramatically? The same reason we see Elijah doing now, that confronting culture requires godly courage. I want to share as we get ready to close, I want to share this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 18 and verse 13. Paul writes to them to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, 
be courageous, be strong. And in verse 14, he says, and do everything with love. You see, you're not going to conquer a nation for the kingdom with military violence. You can't force people to become followers of Jesus. The church has tried that and failed. Some of the very sad moments of church history are when the church forced people to become converts. But you can't force someone to become a follower of Jesus, to put total trust in him. Instead, the kingdom is one here on earth through love. So as we get ready to close today, I want to ask you, what do you need to stand up for? I'll give you three feet to faith questions. First, what do you need to stand up for against the culture of this world? Is it with what you watch and the music you listen to? Is it in the way you act and the way you talk? Is it the way you act in your environment at work or in your, in your home? What things do you need to stand up for in this life? Number two, are you willing to stand alone like Elijah? Are you willing to say, if nobody else stands up for God and his kingdom, I'm willing to do it. And number three, are you getting out of the way and letting God do the work? When you've done everything you can, then you let God do the work of changing people's hearts and drawing people to him. Because if we want to experience what Elijah experienced in Israel, if we want to experience what the first century church experienced in Rome, you and I have to recognize that confronting culture requires godly courage. And here's the good news. We're still here. Jesus has not returned yet, and we still have time to turn this around. You and I can be the people that stand up and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will confront this culture in love because confronting culture requires godly courage. Be blessed this week.